When the girls decide to support their local candidate for city council, they all work together to get Gil Kessler at the top of the poll. But when it's printed in the paper that perhaps Blanche has been working on a poll of a different kind, Rose and Dorothy are quick to shun her. Will Blanche be able to prove to her friends that there was no affair with Gil? Will Sophia ever figure out Gil's secret? Will Dorothy and Rose ever make a proper apology for their abhorrent behavior? All of that and more in today's episode, Strange Bedfellows. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. It's old Billy Shakespeare himself who gives us the title of today's episode. In his play, The Tempest, he wrote, Misery Acquaints a Man with Strange Bedfellows, which has since been turned into political interests can bring together people who otherwise have little in common. So while you might not expect to see certain political figures working together, sometimes there are topics that both can agree on. Good evening to you and yours. Hosting a campaign event, the ladies are happily endorsing Gil Kessler, who is running for city councilman which isn't just the position he hopes to be elected to, but also his slogan. Playing Gil is John Shuck, and there is so much to say about John's career. Sure, I could mention the actor appeared on Ironside, Macmillan and Wife, Star Trek IV, Mission Impossible, and Gunsmoke, or that he played Daddy Warbucks on Broadway, or that his fame had him making guest appearances on game shows like Hollywood Squares and Password Plus, starring Mr. Betty White, Alan Ludden, but there are more important things to discuss, like how John played Herman Munster in the 90s remake of The Munsters. <laughs> That's so funny! <laughs> I don't know! I just can't stop laughing! <laughs> Coco and I have differing opinions on that program. Mine being that I don't know that I even realized it existed until the other day, and also I was a hardcore original fan, so... I don't know how I feel about this. I was 11. And my favorite movie that year, I looked it up, was Hudson Hawk. <laughs> so I wasn't ready for a lot of stuff yet. It's not good. I watched that clip you sent me to, to record, and it was painful to behold. It's rough. I didn't remember it being so garish. Oh, wait. The... So you're saying that your opinion has changed. Absolutely. You loved it as a child, now as an adult. I mean, yeah, I hadn't seen a moment of it in over 30 years. Just their coloring, like the, like oh, Herman Munster yeah. was like bright green, yeah. and and Grandpa was like this really, well, bright gray. Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad you feel that way because I I watched maybe 30 seconds of that clip. It was like bad sitcom for a bad sitcom. It was like a child had made it. Yeah, he was laughing for no reason. It was chaotic, he and it had the none room. of the energy. Oh, no. Of the original. The original Monsters had that very cool feel to it. Oh, yeah. They all felt awesome, even though they were super outsiders. I loved the Monsters. Yes. One of the best themes, too. Mm-hmm. The end. That's true. Okay, well, I guess we don't have differing opinions. Yeah. 
I mean, you've swayed me. <laughs> I was ready to fight hard for its qualities, but it is not possible. But long before that, in 1976, John was paired up with Richard B. Scholl for the sadly only one season lasting Holmes and Yo-Yo, with Richard as Detective Alexander Holmes and John as Gregory Yo-Yo Yo-Yonovich, a robot policeman. We will definitely be revisiting this project as it has another star we'll discuss when we go from here to the pharmacy. Please have a listen and take a moment to find this on YouTube. Watching six-foot-tall John acting like a robot and then somersaulting in mid-air is a sight to behold. This is top secret. No one, including Holmes, must know his identity. Alex, no, don't! You're not a person. You're not going to tell them? In my book, you got to make yourself a good cop. That's what I put in my report. Now here is a fun with a capital F fact that will surely come in handy at Trivia Night. The first major motion picture to use the F word was 1970's M.A.S.H. I'll give you a moment to process the fact that the F word wasn't used in films before that. Like, what? Well, anyway, guess who has the honor of holding that record? One Mr. John Shuck. What a serendipitously rhyming last name. Bob, your head is coming right off. You know, as we were watching this episode, Coco, I was picturing the fact that our sweet Gil, John, drops the F-bomb in a movie. And just the fact that for, like, a lot of people that maybe came from um, stricter households or smaller towns that, you know, didn't have that kind of language, that that could have been their first time hearing that word. It boggles the mind. I hear it constantly because I say it constantly. <laughs> and it's just a word that I feel like people have always used and pretending that we didn't was stupid. Yeah. Sometimes you see something in a 50s movie and only the F word will do. That's true. Oh, the blob. <laughs> As the meeting wraps up, teal, flowy, rappy blouse over a pink shirt over a collared undershirt wearing Dorothy is shocked to not only hear but see her blue bathrobe-wearing mother diss the campaign slogan. She was supposed to stay in her room. It's like she's the alien life form, ALF. What does that stand for? What, are your ears filled with cheese? Alien life form. ALF was an alien puppet created by the notoriously difficult Paul Fusco. The show ran for four seasons, had a movie to tie up loose ends after being canceled, earned an animated series, and had more merch than I could name. And just like Sophia, he was supposed to stay hidden away so no one called the authorities, or in this case, Shady Pines. I loved Alf when I was a kid. And just like with whatever the heck we were just talking about, <laughs> I had no concept of how weird and off-putting it really was. The Munsters remake. Thank you. But yes, agreed. I loved Alf. I think I had an Alf shirt... I had a doll. How could you not like it? He's like a fuzzy little guy on regular. It's like you got to watch the adult TV show with your parents, but then there was also something there for you that you could kind of relate to, this little weird creature that gets yelled at. Am, am I piffing over here? <laughs> your mother didn't approve of Rhonda? Nope. She had a reputation. She skied around. First, that's how I met her. 
We were skiing our eyes out one night. And, well, it's a long story. I think his behavior was excused by the fact that he was an elf. Yeah. So he could do crazy things like eat cats. How funny. The lead, the dad, the husband, whatever. Yeah. He always, he was always, you know, really annoyed. They sort of had a Mr. Wilson, Dennis uh-huh. the Menace relationship. But he really seemed like he did not like being there. And in those outtakes, that is clear. Yeah, because it's not, it's past the enraged part. Now he's at like the devastated part. He's given up on life. Yes. Completely. There's no more, He there are no more tears to cry, no more yells to yell. There's nothing more that could be said to Alf. Alf will not stop. As we discussed this morning, Alf was all the worst parts of Robin Williams put into a little alien puppet. Yeah. Escorting her mother to the kitchen via a grabbing of her delicate arm after somehow successfully clapping whilst holding a coffee pot, Dorothy is annoyed. But Sophia can't help that she gets hungry. Dorothy might have been hiding her mother from Gil because she felt about him the way she knew Sophia would, and she wouldn't want to hear it. Dorothy can praise the man for his kindness and hard work, but neither of them can deny he's a wimp. But that's not the only thing Sophia takes issue with. But what that issue is, she doesn't quite know, at least not yet. But she knows there's something. Ignoring her mother's intuition, Dorothy simply asks that she stay put until the event is done. Sophia doesn't argue outright, but she'll do it, feigning being hurt by Dorothy's fear of her mother embarrassing her. With all of the supporters gone, Gil gives his appreciation to the ladies before heading out. He'll need the evening to pick out a matching handkerchief, tie, and sock combination as his wife is out of town. Riveting stuff, Gil. Thanks. Blanche, in a bright red peplum blouse and skirt, is quite proud of how their party went. Rose, in her light purple, almost gray dress with light gray flowers, hasn't had as much fun as when she helped with the campaign for one Mr. Dewey. No, not Thomas E. Dewey, the former governor of New York, who ran as a Republican nominee for president in 1944 and 1948, losing both times. He's most famous for being the incorrect name on the newspaper that Harry S. Truman held up when he won the presidency. No, she helped on the campaign for Melville Dewey, who created the number system used in libraries, the Dewey Decimal System. Not quite sure what that campaign would have been, as Melville died in 1931. Finally allowed to leave the kitchen, Sophia has a declaration. Based on all of the local papers and her own intuition, Gil has no chance of winning. Well, Sophia, you can't call a game when there is still time on the clock, and this election has two days left. And we're talking 80s politics in Miami. A lot can happen in two days. Blanche sees the negative reviews as motivation to work even harder to get Gill elected as her councilman. She'll do anything. How convenient, because the anything that needs to be done right now is getting important paperwork to Gill, which he had forgot at the house. When Blanche isn't so keen on the idea, she thinks it's a good opportunity for Rose to exhibit some civil service. That's not a problem for Rose. She'll exchange that chore for the one she was about to do, clean the dirty dishes. Well, Blanche doesn't mind doing dishes, but why do they have to be dirty? With a few looks of desperation to not have to leave the house, relatable, Blanche reluctantly accepts the job. Coco, would you or have you ever participated in a political campaign? No. 
I no. I I'm lazy, and I'm sorry for that. But also, yeah, in school, I would not have participated in that because I don't want to have to talk to anyone. If you'll excuse me, as someone who has spent extensive time on a campaign, I can tell you that it is not for everyone, and it will uh, exhaust you. If you can believe it, not everyone wants to be talked to about politics at their front door. I'm glad that I did that, and it was a fascinating and unbelievably frustrating process. So, you know, it's not for everyone. I don't recommend it. (laughs) I had learned around that time that my grandmother had worked on political campaigns, possibly shoulder-to-shoulder with your father in Los Angeles. Yeah, my dad started, I think, campaigning for Robert Kennedy. Yeah. And he's he's campaigned for uh, for for candidates uh, since that point for his entire life. He still does it. Still did it for the last election. And my my dad was uh, a really great great at campaigning, and he was one of the best in the county or the state or something. And he got invited to the hotel the night that he was assassinated. And they were like my mom and he were on their way there when That's they when right. they found out about it. Yeah. Celebrating herself for being such a good sport and citizen, Blanche leaves while also complaining that she'd better get paid back for mileage and gas, which in today's money would be about $387, and he only lives two miles away. It's the next morning. In all pink, Rose is pounding away on what looks to be a bird feeder. When Dorothy comes out from her room in her teal and white robe, we learn it's probably a bit too early for her to be making such a ruckus. Rose is sorry for the noise, but not for the reason. She's decided the best way to help Gil get more votes is to give people bird feeders that she is building by hand one day before the election. Wow. This girl is really, um, sweet, huh? Without a word, just a stare of judgment and death, Dorothy stares at Rose. Knowing what she would say without having to hear it, Rose seems to agree. The idea is stupid, and the feeder should be smashed with a hammer, just like this. I really feel at this point that Rose has reached a new level of dumbness. It ebbs and flows. Or, okay, it, it does change over time because it's just, she's yeah, it's very heavy now. And I feel like for the past couple or few episodes, it's been like that. Yeah, this is like kicked by a horse, Rose. <laughs> it's not her brightest moment, no. Coming in the door with that day's papers is a yellow shirt and pant with blue cardigan wearing Sophia, exclaiming the holy trinity of smoke, cow, and mackerel. Curious what could be going on, Dorothy Pries. Huh? Oh, it's nothing. Knowing it is clearly something, Rose and Blanche follow her into the kitchen when she hands over the paper. Their sweet, meek, weak Gil apparently took advantage of his wife being gone and had a female lover over the night before. Dorothy finds it laughable, but Rose explains. The photographer respectfully hid in the bushes near Gil's house when the woman, wearing a red dress, just like Blanche, and red shoes, like Blanche, and a gold bracelet and diamond earrings, like Blanche, was leaving Gil's house, they snapped the photo. Quick question, if the picture is of the woman's backside, how are you seeing a bracelet, let alone earrings? 
Well, this sends Rose into a tizzy. Whomever this slut is has robbed Blanche of her belongings. Wow, Rose really does have the murder mystery solving skills of a character in an Agatha Christie novel. She is the best-selling fiction author of all time. I don't think I need to say much more. Dorothy then corrects her. That's not some floozy thief. It's a straight-up floozy named Blanche. Processing the shocking information, Rose's mental wheels elicit a literal squeak as Sophia gives the football equivalent commentary as she nears the touchdown line. If that's what it's even called. I didn't look it up. End zone? But, like, what's that line? Is that the touchdown line? The end line? The zero? I literally don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to call that. I, I know, and I didn't want to look it up. I, I mean, figured I'll just also, go with touchdown like, line. I do know how football is played. I, football. Is it a finish line? Yes. <laughs> I think it's a basket. <laughs> just then, pastel rainbow robe and pajamaed Blanche comes in and congratulates Rose on correctly identifying her. What she didn't realize was she was IDing her in the photo. Horrified, Blanche can't believe her butt is across all the local papers. How could they do something like that? A question that can't help but be answered by Sophia, who is certain the photog had to have used a wide-angled lens to get all of it to fit. Annoyed at the unflattering picture, not that it was taken, Blanche just wishes she could have offered a better angle. For Dorothy, it appears Blanche had offered enough of herself already which has now sabotaged not only a man's career, but his marriage. Blanche can't help but find their reactions laughable. It's not like you could actually believe I did anything sexual with him. All three remain skeptical of their friend, especially since the spies at the newspaper claimed she had been at the house for more than two hours. Well, yeah, that's true, but all she did was help him with the sock-hanky-tie combo, and then they talked for a while. Two days before an election, Gil probably had a lot on his mind and found it nice to have a pal and confidant. Agatha, I mean Rose, is on the accusations too. Oh, nothing happened? Then why does it say right here that there was a great explosion that could be felt miles away? Oh, right, because that's information for a story about an earthquake in Central America. Whoops. Clarifying, since her friends seem to be all worked up and not hearing her, Blanche lays it all out. I went to his house. I dropped off the folder. I went inside, and we talked for two hours. I came home. That's it. With her begging, the girls finally believe her, and they start to make a plan as to what they should do to clarify the misunderstanding. Recognizing it's more of a problem for Gil to handle, they decide he should lead the way. Recognizing it's more of a problem for Gil to handle, they decide he should lead the way. Now they just have to wait for the press conference he'll be holding in a few hours. Staring at a photo of Gil in the paper, Sophia is still convinced. There is something with Gil, something in his eyes. She knows there's a secret, and she's going to figure it out. She always does. Dorothy finds that to be a load of hogwash. You're always right about these things, like when you said my cousin Angela would be the Pope someday. Pope, Sophia rebuttals. No, I said one day he'll sell dope, and it sounds like she may have been right about that one, as the cousin apparently spent time in Attica, New York's state prison. It's not like he went there to be on the volleyball team, which might be a reference to the Attica sit-in protest of 1976, when prisoners stayed in their cells as a protest against their poor treatment. Well, not everyone did. Some went out to the cafeteria, some played sports outside, and six guys played volleyball. 
Later that afternoon, Dorothy is sneaking a catnap with the newspaper draped across her face when Sophia comes in and slaps her arm before gibbering something about a bibbidi-boobidi. Just like Dorothy, Sophia was asleep when something hit her. Taking us back to Sicily in 1922, Sophia tells us about the time all of the grape stompers came down with a case of athlete's foot, which is an itchy rash betwixt your toes that is contagious making winemaking for that season nearly impossible, as it was not only disgusting, but the treatment of using Dustinex powder was really ruining the flavor. Enter local podiatrist Bruno Bonafiglio, whose claim to fame was prescribing arch supports to fascist party creator and best buds to Hitler, Mussolini. When he was captured and killed, he was hung by his ankles in a square where he was hit with food, rocks, and bullets. I'm sure the arch supports were appreciated. Yeah, yeah, hold your horses. Okay, from the second Sophia saw Bruno, she knew there was something up with him. No one listens to Sophia, and Bruno saves the day, the toes, and wine season. This, of course, leaves Dorothy confused as to how the story shows Sophia's right about her hunches. Well, once the wine was available, everyone paired it with meat, fish, and alcohol, leading to the arthritic crystallization of uric acid in the toes known as gout. Bruno sells all sorts of supportive footwear and makes a killing. Used to the ridiculous endings of Rose's stories, Dorothy guesses in jest that Bruno relocated to the States and changed his name to Dr. Scholl's, the shoe insert company. No, that would be ridiculous. It just turned out he was a foot doctor because he was into feet. Like, a lot. At some point after the gout gaff, he ended up suffocating after putting his head in a woman's rubber boot. Finishing this hilarious line, Sophia lifts her arms in a what-are-you-gonna-do manner. It also plays like a maestro ending a symphony of storytelling. Dorothy can only respond with a request to never be awoken by her mother, especially for a story like that, ever again. Wanting to watch the press conference as a group, Blanche and Rose interrupt the great Petrillo stare-off of 87 to come sit on the couch and turn on the TV. Before Gil gets to the podium, the camera is panning the press room, allowing Blanche to show off her breadth of knowledge surrounding the names and, I'm assuming, marital statuses and underwear size of each reporter in the room. Playing two of the reporters are Darwin Carson, who hasn't acted in 20 years, but had been on ER, Diagnosis Murder, The Practice, Murder One, Bold and the Beautiful, Beverly Hills 90210, and Hill Street Blues. Also playing a reporter is David Westgore. He appeared in Backdraft, Dallas, A-Team Fame, and Knott's Landing. Rose is quite impressed by Blanche's ability to remember all of those men's names after only one visit to the press club, when it took her a whole two out of the five seasons to remember that, besides the father Tom, the sitcom Eight is Enough included David, Mary, Joni, Susan, Nancy, Elizabeth, Tommy, and Nicholas. Entering the room, Gil takes his spot, giving a prepared speech about the recent scandal. For Gil, someone who has dealt with the mudslinging of politics long enough to have been embroiled in some rumors, this was horrible news, because this rumor was a true one. Just like the papers reported, Gil and Blanche had had an affair, her identity being leaked thanks to some investigative reporting by the investigative reporters. Okay, it wasn't that investigative. They just looked at the photo and recognized her Miami famous caboose. 
Coco, did private school ever put you in the middle of a rumor situation or were you guys too good for that? You didn't have to deal with rumors. There was one rumor I can remember that turned out to be true. <gasps> and it was that a couple of guys in senior year, I believe, broke into the house of another kid and stole like a bunch of sports equipment, memorabilia, something. Oh, you know, my God. Or something. And there was a rumor that, that of these two kids that had done it, but no one knew. And then the next day, they were not in school because <gasps> they had done it. And I believe they, yeah, they were expelled and they did not get to graduate. That is a thrilling rumor. It was nuts. I couldn't believe it, but <laughs> I did find out a lot of stuff about my high school class way afterwards and that they were nuts. I was not like that, but they were crazy. Wow. Like that. Drugs and whatnot. So it might have been drug-seeking behavior. I don't know. That's hardcore. It was really hardcore. And it was like, I didn't even pop up on the radar, man. I flew <laughs> right above. You had a little bit of Gil Kessler energy. Totally. That's not a bad thing. Maybe that's why he annoyed me so much is that I related so hard. I'm no wimp. No. I'm just a I, quiet man. And uh, being looked over is how I mean. Quite. Yeah. But who's looked over me? How dare you say this to me? No. <laughs> <laughs> I like know as what you a mean. kid. Stevie Nicks, tell me about your rumors. Well, my school had uh, just around 3,000 students in it, a little bit more. So there were plenty of rumors, you know, people that would hook up in uh, the band closet, people that would hook up in the custodial closet, couples that were having sex. In middle school, I was there was a rumor that I had had sex with my friend Marshall on the playground after school. And in sixth grade, I wasn't even fully aware what sex was. I kind of had a basic idea of what it was, but certainly was not doing anything in that realm. And I believe we've talked about this horrible teacher before, but my sixth grade teacher, Miss Perry, the evil woman, saw that I was upset and I told her why. And so she had me sit cross-legged on top of my desk after recess to tell everyone about the rumor, which I, even at that, that age, I was like, hmm, I feel like not everyone in this class has heard that rumor. So if I have to repeat it, might just make it spread more. So that was pretty cool. What was her name? Nancy Perry. Nancy Perry. Of Portland, Oregon. Go eat a bag of your own sh <laughs> After the room of reporters confirmed it was her and Gil confirmed with them they were right, Blanche is shocked. His pitiful apology is garbage compared to the lies he's telling about her. Lies that Rose and Dorothy believe. With looks of disgust and the silent treatment, those two ride their high horses to the kitchen, while Sophia ever the one to spot a financial opportunity, calls the operator. She has got to get a hold of someone at People Magazine. She's got one hell of a story to sell. Hoping to clear the air with her friends, Blanche goes into the kitchen. With nearly a laugh in her voice, she can't believe it appears her friends still think she's lying. Rose going so far as to say, we already fell for it once. Even when Blanche pushes back, promising she wasn't lying, Dorothy jumps in. Oh, okay, one of our best friends. We're supposed to believe you, someone we've known, loved, and trusted over this this stranger who is on TV, not only trying to save his reputation, marriage, and campaign, but is a politician, again, on television, as if someone in that position would be dishonest. Not going for the easy target of, yeah, I do think a politician would lie on television, Blanche uses the news magazine program 60 Minutes to make her point. 
Even back then, she was right. They did lie all the time. All right, that might be a little hyperbolic, but they did have several scandals by the late 80s and have continued to have them as recently as May of 2021. While the more recent ones have related to COVID and erasure, the 80s was all about car troubles for 60 Minutes. Their first known slip-up was in December of 1980. 60 Minutes reported that there was a Jeep on the market that had a high rollover risk. Using the footage from the Insurance Institute for Highway Testing, a Jeep CJ5 was shown going around a corner at 20 miles per hour and rolling. This horrified viewers, and the car was deemed the most dangerous thing on four wheels. Within six years, that model Jeep would be discontinued. Years later, it was revealed that in regards to the test, the IIHT had not only put weights on the side of the car to make it roll, they attempted it 435 times, and the car only rolled eight. Then, in November of 1986, 60 Minutes falsely reported that there were Audis that were experiencing, quote, unintended acceleration when the brake was pushed. Once again, they had an incident on video. When Audi ran the same test, they could not get the same results. Even outside testers were brought in. No issue. It took 15 years for Audi to rebound from the financial impact that the story had. So the lesson here is be honest in your journalism. In the case of the Audi, the, the company maintains that without a shadow of a doubt, the drivers themselves are causing these accidents. Do you believe that's true? No, sir, I do not. I didn't know that that was a, that was a clip about something that, that 60 Minutes had messed up. I thought Audi was like lying the whole time. No. And they were like, this isn't a thing. It's not our fault. And it was a scam. It was not true. I, I don't know if it was technically a scam, but the very little that I read about it was basically that it was user error. So whether they were purposely doing that or if they were all trying to get a lawsuit, I don't know. But yeah, it, it did not happen. They could not get any of their cars to have it accelerate when you pushed on the brake. Busted. <laughs> That's right. Then Dorothy makes a good point. Here they are, one day before an election. Why would a married man who is running a campaign smear himself with a lie like that? Well, Blanche doesn't have the answer, but she also doesn't understand why this is even up for debate. Since they don't have an answer for why Gil would do this, Blanche wants to know what the reasoning is that she would do it. Simple. In Dorothy's eyes, Blanche went to Gil's house and seduced him, and now she's feeling guilty and embarrassed. Rose is on Dorothy's side, but both Dorothy and Blanche would like her to shut up. Getting a phone call, Blanche has been found. Assuming it's a reporter, we only hear a desperately defiant Blanche swearing on Bibles and screaming from mountaintops that she did not have the affair. Not only in hopes of convincing the reporter, but her friends, too. Unfortunately, Blanche's passion didn't really read like that so much as it read as overdramatic. Dorothy compares her performance to that of Jim and Tammy Faye, friends of Jerry Falwell at the PTL Church, who, when confronted about missing funds, went on a PR tour of patheticness. You're saying that uh, Jerry Falwell is lying? I have been married to this man for 26 years, and I can tell you one thing. He's not homosexual, or is he bisexual? He's a wonderful, loving husband. They also said you were kind of like a shopping machine. I mean, you would well, go out I, and... I do like to shop. I'm probably uh, well-known <laughs> for my shopping. <laughs> Yeah, but I am a bargain hunter. Why does Jim Baker have to inflict himself on the American public? Why is it necessary for you to maintain 
I mean, what kind of a role model do you think you are? The only role model I hope I could be is a sinner saved by grace and that there's hope for me and there's hope for everyone else. That's that, fine, that's... but I mean, why, why should you be preaching anything? I'm asking that uh, with, with certainly a healthy dose of cynicism. I'm saying here is a man who, who certainly mismanaged funds. There is no money missing at PTL. This was a hoax perpetrated by Jerry Falwell. With another ringing of the phone, Blanche has had it. She tells that fool on the other line to lose her number because she hates him and wants him to crawl under a slimy rock. Slamming the receiver down, Blanche is kind enough to pass the message on to Dorothy that she needs to return Stan's call. Then Dorothy's true feelings come out. It's because of her views of Blanche's lifestyle of dating and sexual liberation that has her convinced she's guilty. Starting to panic, realizing more and more just how seriously unsupportive and unloving her friends are being, Blanche starts to get emotional. It's not even that they don't believe her, but she's embroiled in a political scandal and she needs support. It isn't fair they should deny her that just because of her past. Adding imaginary salt to her wound, Dorothy is even more hurt by the fact that Blanche didn't feel she could come to them to be honest. Um, hello? Look at your response right now. Based on your reactions, I can't imagine how warm and loving you would have been if she had said that she actually slept with him. This is not some sort of karmic retribution. This is a moment Blanche needs her friends, a plea that even innocent Rose doesn't believe. Heartbroken, Blanche leaves, heading to Gill's campaign headquarters. Making her way by any means necessary, even pushing past Sarah Partridge, who is playing the secretary, Blanche is going to get into that office. Sarah got her start in risky business. She went on to appear in Dallas, Twilight Zone, Perfect Strangers, Murder, She Wrote, Mad About You, and Melrose Place. Her voice talents were featured in My Little Pony and Darkwing Duck. Once in the office, Blanche threatens to kick Gil the 482 miles northwest to Tallahassee. Apologizing, he lets us in on the truth, that Blanche has been honest all along, and he, in fact, did lie. On TV, to the press, to everyone. And all Blanche wants to know is why. And so he starts, why? Well, he wants to say, why? Not listening to a word the man has to say, Blanche continues interrupting him, throwing in some name-calling of wimp and whiny for good measure. Everything she just said and did, that was why he lied. He has never felt heard in his life. He's been called meek and pathetic. But when he was seen as a sexual fiend, hooking up with the most gorgeous woman in Miami, he was seen as more manly, and his ratings in the polls actually went up. He feels terrible about the whole thing, if that helps. Oh, sure, he feels bad, but he also gets to look like the hero. And she's stuck looking like the slut that had to sleep with a pathetic politician. Well, Gil goes on. As a child, he always had to introduce himself to his classmates. They would forget him over the summer. But deep down, even when he was little, he knew a great man was within. Hoping to find his footing in greatness, he went into politics. But that still didn't work. So when he saw he was getting the attention he always wanted because of Blanche, he just couldn't say no. Now, thanks to the lying, Gil might actually win. But for Blanche, this isn't Gil. Why would you want to win when it's only coming from a lie? It isn't a win if you had to cheat to get it. You can't be a great man if you aren't an honest man. It's later that night at campaign headquarters. Getting punches Dorothy in a very shiny white and teal 
outfit, we'll call it. Coming into the office in a most fabulous purple with fuchsia flower dress slash fitted muumuu and sunglasses is Blanche, who, unlike the married political figure, is getting hounded by press and photographers. I wonder if their references to Donna Rice had the writers feeling empathy for how the women of scandals like this are often treated compared to the men. Shooing the vultures off, Blanche assures them she has nothing to say, except for one thing. When Blanche Devereaux is written in the papers, it should be followed by age 39. Acting as if they don't live together or have even talked about what would be happening for the election, Rose and Dorothy are shocked to see Blanche at the office. Keeping things cordial, they say hello, but Blanche refuses to acknowledge her friends that have accused her of lying. Totally invalidating her feelings, Dorothy tells her they're in public. They should all just get along. But Blanche doesn't owe them that. She tells them straight up she doesn't like them. Unwilling to see her role in the fiasco, Dorothy responds with a Sophia-inspired, well, when you wear horizontal stripes, you look as large as the late film critic who had worked hard before his passing to lose over 100 pounds, Roger Ebert. Now that they've all had their moments of maturity, the names start flying like ping-pong balls. Blanche, with an accurate traitor, is met with a tramp. Another accurate backstabber is met with the very unfair homewrecker. Caught up in the excitement, Rose gives us the oh boy of saying Indian giver, which is a term believed to have been created by the colonizers of America back when the indigenous people gave them gifts, when really it was more likely the gifts were meant to be temporary, but the white folks didn't understand, so they created a demeaning term. Blanche removes herself from the conversation just in time for Gil to emerge from his office to speak. Her words from earlier in the day really had an effect on him. He hasn't been honest, and it's time he clears the air. Looking to Blanche, he has her attention, and he confesses. There was no affair, earning a har-har from Blanche to her friends. Proving Dorothy and Rose even more wrong, Gil gives Blanche the credit for him even speaking to them. So it's time to be completely honest. Before his sex reassignment surgery in 1968, Gil Kessler had been a housewife and stenographer known as Anna Maria Bonaducci. Jaws are dropped. The crowd is flabbergasted. This was a groundbreaking confession for the 1980s. Proud of her intuition, but annoyed she didn't guess in time, Sophia finally realizes she was right. Dorothy can't believe it. No one knew. How could Sophia? Simple. His nose. Bonaducci? He's Italian not the German-Jewish heritage of Kessler. Back at the house, Rose and Dorothy are wiped out. They've been horrible friends, they learned what to them was big news about their other friend, and there is still an election to be had. On top of that, Rose has just so many questions as many people do. Now, it's best to do your research on your own and not expect your friend who has come out as transgender to educate you on the entire process. When it comes to gender reassignment surgery, that is something that is up to the individual. Being transgender does not automatically mean someone will be getting gender reassignment surgery. Options include mastectomy, hysterectomy, and the construction of a neophallus, which can be built from the tissue on the arm or leg. Some people experience natural growth in that area thanks to hormones and don't wish to have more surgery. 
It's all up to whatever the person decides best expresses their gender identity and not about your curiosity about what's going on in their pants. You want people thinking about your junk like that? I didn't think so. Left with her own thoughts, Rose can't help but continue to obsess over what Gil's genitals are made of, hoping to get her friend to shut up, leave her alone about a topic she doesn't know enough about, and to show her how silly her questions are, Dorothy screams, They're made of the silicone toy, silly putty. All of this has Dorothy cranky AF. It has been a long night. She doesn't want to think about her friend's penis. She's upset Gil dropped out of the election, and they've ruined their friendship with someone who is not only their friend, but their landlord. That's a good guess, Rose, but Dorothy's actually upset that the made-for-TV movie of Facts of Life Down Under hasn't been replayed. As it originally, in 1987, came out as a movie, it took a while before they were able to edit it down into multiple episodes for syndication. Tough break, Dorothy. What was it you said you did? Did I? You didn't. You didn't? Didn't you? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm a member of the oldest profession. Uh, the oldest in Australia, that is. You'll remember our country was founded as a penal colony. You're a crook? He's a cop, Blair. Very good. Inspector Kevin Colton at your service. Thinking back to their behavior, they both realize their friend has every right to never speak to them again. Speak of the devil in a blue dress, Blanche comes in the door and is surprisingly delighted to see them. The two are jarred by her chipper mood, Rose going so far as to start listing the punishments they should receive. They should have to eat dirt, beg for her forgiveness, grovel. Dorothy comes up with a better option. Rose gives all of them the silent treatment, and Dorothy will eat dirt in exchange. Normally, I laugh off the girls having their little fights and working things out, and I understand this is a sitcom, just a silly episode of a show we love. But boy, do I hate the message in this one. Not worrying about getting the apologies she's owed, Blanche takes the blame on herself. How is that even possible? Well, she's figured it's a case of the girl who cried wolf. As a Southern belle, her job is to keep her friends entertained with riveting stories, no matter how dull a date may have been. So, apparently, because she's made her sexual escapades sound more exciting than they were, therefore the newspapers, a politician, and her friends were all just allowed to think the worst of her and call her a liar, a sentiment I just cannot get behind. Making matters worse, Rose wants to hug it out and forget about the whole thing which they all agree to. Wrapping everything up in a nice 30-minute bow of sitcom solution, the girls hug. But Dorothy has one more thing, since Blanche is finally being honest and all. Bob Fredericks, true? Not only true, Blanche tells her, but so is Howard Asher and Eric Murdoch, and his twin brother. Almost hugging, the girls embrace, Blanche with her hands behind her back, fingers crossed. When this episode is on TV, even when I had it coming up for this show, I was dreading it. Before revisiting it, I assumed it would be full of many more oh boys than it is. An 80s sitcom touching on someone being transgender? Oh boy. But really, I think they handled it quite nicely. Gil even says how he felt his whole life there was a great man living inside of him. And even when he comes out, no one says anything mocking or degrading. They're sad that he dropped out of the race, not happy to have defeated one more LGBTQIA person in classic Florida style. Speaking of Florida, gay, 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 gay. 
But now, watching the episode, the story feels much different. It's harshly relatable. I've mentioned in earlier episodes how the story touched on topics that were relevant to me and my Golden Girls, but none so much as this episode. Maybe that's why I feel not only protective of Blanche, but I also feel really bad for her. She is too good of a person to have to settle for friends who not only think she's a liar, but refuse to be there for her in her time of need. So as some of you listeners may know, Coco and I are an actual couple, and if not, I'm sure you've figured that out as we've gone. And how we got together had some surrounding circumstances that, yes, if you were on the outside, the photographer on the porch, if you will, you could easily assume that it was a situation similar to Gil and Blanche's. And just like that situation, when I reached out to my friends for support, it was met with questions surrounding my honesty, and yes, even the term homewrecker was used. That was a year and a half ago, and there are a lot of other circumstances, but those conversations, those moments of need, those times that I reached out to my best friends only to have them met with disbelief, remain some of the most heartbreaking and damaging conversations of my life. Those relationships remain broken, and I don't know if they will ever be repaired. But one thing is for sure. My past dating life be damned. Unless I have given you a reason to not believe me, I would hope and assume that you would. When that isn't the case with the people you thought you trusted the most, it's going to take a lot more than a hug and a sweeping under the rug for the trust to be rebuilt. The idea that your sexual activity has any correlation to how honest, loyal, or decent of a person you are is totally ludicrous. I would hope that most adults would be able and willing to see the difference in embellishing stories as a true Southern slut would and being an honest person. Coco, I know you had some big feelings with this episode as well. Did you want to touch on those at all? It was just another episode where they they acted in a way to me that wasn't them. You know, I think, you know, they they gripe and they bitch at each other and they have conflicts. But that was just like they, they were just denying uh, who Blanche is. Mm-hmm. That that her those actions equal something else about her as, as like a fundamental thing about her, a negative thing about her. And they, they prejudged her. They 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 wouldn't accept anything other than an apology. And and Blanche saying it was her fault. Mm. Uh, it was it was it was yeah it was it, it really I mean it brought up all of these things that that are that have happened in our life yeah and yeah I just what's the point of that kind of friendship I do not understand that what why are you there what the what is that yeah uh yeah so yes it did upset me and I think that's I've had a, good a tough point week <laughs> it's been a long week for me I think that's a good point of you saying that they were out of character a bit because every once in a while an episode it's almost like the writers needed to use it as a cathartic outlet or something you know I used to always find myself gravitating towards Dorothy I always felt I was a Dorothy I'm uh, irritable and (laughs) larger and seen as a brave strong lady and uh, there there are a lot of aspects to her that I relate to that you could get someone to break a birdhouse with just a look. I feel like I could make that happen. 100%. <laughs> but yeah, the more I see these moments happen with Blanche where she's the easy target because she because they they feel her moral compass is worse than hers. 
they they pop up every once in a while and they're really hard to watch. And I see that in our Golden Girl community that people do skip this episode a lot. And it is because the fight is just so ugly. If you don't have the trust and you don't feel known and you don't feel seen for who you really are, I certainly have asked the question, why do they want to be friends with me? Not in a self-deprecating way, but just kind of, you know, you're upset with me for being hurt, but this is how you feel about me. This is how you feel about me. So why do you want me around? Is it just the principle that you guys are friends? And that and that 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 alone means something that you cannot break even if you don't like the person. I don't agree with that. I say break, 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 break. <laughs> Get out of there, baby. I think that's a big part of it. And we've talked about this several times how societally we are trained to be sad when relationships are over and friendship conquers all. And I think those blanket statements are lovely, but they are unrealistic. And the conversation needs to be more, oh, well, you know, do you want to talk about why that relationship didn't last? Do you need to work that stuff out so that that doesn't happen next time? You know, uh, we had good family friends that my mom just found out they're getting a divorce and she's devastated. And I said, but you don't know if that's for the best. You don't know if it's better that they're apart now. I think that gets lost uh, in our society that if you are friends with someone, then you aren't loyal if you hold that boundary. You know, if you hold a boundary or you end a friendship, that means you are not loyal and that you can't be trusted as a friend when really it's I'm a, I'm putting my friendship with myself first and foremost. I will be my best friend. And if you treat me any differently than that, that's not a friend. You telling that story about your mom's reaction to that news about a divorce is is a good example because it shows that that reaction was completely based on everything that your mother thinks, all of the yes. judgments, the th the thoughts, all of the structures she has built in her mind, uh, in her life about those sorts of things, about marriage, about divorce, about what that means, and to her that means catastrophe. Yes, I think that Dorothy and Rose were like envious i think th i think they envy her yeah i think there's a part of that for sure well because then it's i i i won't be jealous that you have all these dates because look at what happens to you so if i don't have all these dates i won't have this karmic you know result oh so it's better for them not to do that stuff because then they oh yeah because then they're not they're not sluts right yeah like, well, I mean, I would love to be a slut, but at least I don't have this bad stuff happening. But I think it's interesting how you were saying of like kind of my mom's perception of that relationship. I think that for me has been definitely one of the biggest parts of quarantine has been uh, seeing masks come off right. or seeing the true colors of people. And that's in good and bad ways. You mean metaphorical masks? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Uh, yes. Keep your mask on, please. So I think that seeing so much of that, I have learned and I'm am continuing to teach myself like I don't know anyone and that's OK. I can know people to the degree that they'll let me. And I know I know myself and I know I know you and vice versa. But it's OK. And I think a lot of people don't like that idea, but it's OK to not know everything about other people. 
because you, you, I don't know what happened in that relationship. Was one of the people involved a total jerk? And we never saw that. Maybe was somebody abusive? Was someone unloving? Was someone not having their needs met? You have no idea what goes on between two people. And so accepting that, hey, it is ending. Maybe that is for the best because people change and grow and move on. That's all right. But it would have been interesting in this episode if Blanche hadn't apologized right then. Oh, if she had just walked out of the room? To just, like, what would yeah. that play out as? Maybe they wouldn't have to, but it, you you could probably extrapolate that, that she stood her ground. And then I, I would think that, that she stood her ground and then they maybe understood. Yeah. But they didn't, they didn't go to that. They should have. You know, I was thinking that their reactions to Blanche in general, when it's negative, I think is tied into, I mean, to me at least, it's tied to the fact that Dorothy has a lot of hangups about sex because of Stan. Yeah. And she's really only been with Stan, I think. And then Rose has only was only ever with Charlie right. to that point, and he died mid-sex. As did her other lover. So they have a, that, that's what I'm saying is like, yeah. their stuff affects that sort of thing. So it's like, even if that is their opinion, it sucks because it's super skewed by the sh- by the, by the crap they've been with been through. Yeah, oh, I'm been with and been with. <laughs> yeah, a lot of duty people, people made out of turd. <laughs> yeah, it is it, for being like a simple little episode. It really does have a lot of um, interesting talking points and things to look at and say. In this day and age, with what we know about toxic relationships, what should Blanche have done? Could she have continued living with them? I know in the the personal situation I've talked about, I think constantly about like, what do those people say if someone asks why I'm not around them? How do they answer that? So like, how would Rose and Dorothy have answered that if they had to move and then they saw friends? Be like, oh, are you still living with Blanche? What happened? Oh, we called her a lying slut and refused to stand by her side or believe her. You know, is that really, are they going to be that honest? Definitely not. Or will it just be? Oh, wait, be... who are we talking about? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Any of, I mean, I feel like, again, that's why we do this show, because Golden Girls still stays so relevant. Yeah, it's like a mirror. It really is. And and it's funny, too. I mean, it's it's only because we're, you know, we're doing that show now, but it seems like every episode it's like when you break up and there's like every sad yes. song is on the radio it's like how did the girls know that i'd be going through this right now with my friends yeah it just always touches on something you know even when it's the goofy ones or whatever it's still the or, fun but... or even a misfire story-wise like yeah. that where it ends in a, on a really bad note it makes us think about what it could have been mm-hmm. so, i don't know it was still good it was still very funny and i think i feel like dorothy had one of the funniest what was she screaming about? Something. She had the funniest look on her face at one point. Oh, oh, um, it was at the end when Blanche was telling her about Eric. Derek yeah, with the twins. Yeah, her, her yeah, her face was. <laughs> yeah, she looked quite quite happy to be hearing that story. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. so, and I think that that's you know that's part of why people skip it is we love these people so much, and it is a fantasy world, so we don't want to see them be nasty like people in real life. That yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They were like. It's like. Your I'm watching this. Friends. Yeah, I'm watching this and I'm going to be emotional watching it because I'm hurt by my friends and I'm trying to escape it. Mm-hmm. 
As much as we like to see relationships healed, sometimes the toxicity needs to be processed before just moving on. If Blanche needs time to reevaluate the relationships she has with the girls, well, she has every right to do so. On the flip side, the girls should be doing more to repair the relationship, if that's what they really want, than to just decide Blanche will be mad at them when she hasn't even said as much. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Dorothy becomes a brother lover in Brotherly Love. John was paired up with Richard B. Scholl for the sadly only one season lasting Hoops and Yo-Yo. Is it? It's Hoops and Yo-Yo? It's not Homes and Yo-Yo? Wait. I don't, I mean, I don't Wait, know. did I say hoops? Yeah, you almost certainly said hoops, but yeah. Oh my God. You, you, you definitely <gasps> said You know why? Because there hoops. is a hoops and yo-yo. Sorry. <laughs> it's That's insane. A stone cold fact. You're, you're not okay. Okay, in all fairness, hoops and yo-yo are characters that are made from Hallmark. And <laughs> so there is a reason that my brain did this. I'm just upset at it for doing so. I mean, what are the odds that there are two things called something and yo-yo <laughs> on this H, earth? In all fairness, H-O. I'm not, yeah, and an S at the end there. So. Basically the same words. I'm just saying that's why I'm stupid. Letters are just <laughs> shapes, man. What a serendipitous, oh man, serendip, serendipitous. Serendipitous, is there like an, <laughs> what a serendipitously rhyming. What, what do we do with this guy? Oh, Die Hard 2. Oh, my God, yes. And they were talking. We just happened to turn it on. He's like, that's my friggin' sandwich. With Dennis France. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and his buns. Yeah, it's weird. In Die Hard 2, his buns are out the whole movie. <laughs> Does his lack of hair, his jealousy towards Alf's robust fur have something to do with their oh. relationship? Alf is incredibly hirsute. He looks like he has a small Jimmy Stewart body and a pencil-thin ding-dong and then some sort of weird space corkscrew penis. Gordon Shemway, baby. Blanche is in a bright red peplum brow... Broush. I don't trust my brain at all. Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. I do. I donate some things. And, um... Close the Goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. That's so Gil that, of course, he was already late to the speech. Gib. Oh, <laughs> Gil is from this episode. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I you were talking about my father. <laughs> I was, but my brain said Gil because oh, oh, I'm looking were. at the word Gil on oh, my good. page. Well, there you go. And I mean Gib. Start that over again. Hoops and yo-yo. <laughs> Hoops and yo-yo. I can't Gil. be trusted. No one should ever listen to me ever again. Well. My words are jumbled. My brain is jumbled. I've had a lot of cold medicine the last couple of days. I don't think I should have any more. But you're worth it. Oh. You've earned it. Thank you, Maybelline. Break away. Break down. Ooh, let Kelly the, let the, the brain just tumble into pieces. Okay. And then pick them back up and shove them into your brain and keep on babbling. Perfect. I love you. <laughs> My second favorite seal song. <laughs> I've been kicked by a horse and I'm Rose. Something like that. That's a weird way to exit a house, but first. <laughs> Unless there's someone advancing upon you. True. Or uh, some sort of 
creature, a monster or something, <laughs> it's okay to back up in that case. Make yourself look in very big. In that case, big. I will allow it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a promise. And that's canon. I know it's not going to be in the body, but it might be a blooper. How dare you cough over me when I'm talking? How dare you do it twice? I do not know. I do not know what. I do not know. Interlocal podiatrist Bruno Boga Bonafige <laughs> used to the ridiculous endings of Rose's stories. Stories. Is she still alive? I believe so. Well, I hope it hurts. <laughs> You guys get nuts in the East County. That's right. <laughs> Dirty grunge children. Bit of recess lady's breast. Rose going so far as to say, well, uh, well, I've been kicked by a horse. Uh. It's true. A couple and, of your uh, friends are incredible, and the rest of them should go eat a bag of their own <laughs> Miss Perry, right? <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.